it feels so good to give, you know, and it's just like the cherry on top that it's a real give. Yeah, I think it's a social responsibility. I feel like all of us have a duty to serve in whatever capacity we can. I don't care if you have a household name or not. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Today, this episode finds us here in beautiful Lake Tahoe, where I get to talk to a beautiful dear friend of mine, Carrie Walsh Jennings. So again, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Thank you, Larry. So this podcast really is designed to highlight and inspire a community of givers and really talk about the goodness in people. And when I think of great and good people, you know, Carrie Walsh Jennings certainly is at the top of the list. And so it's a pleasure for us to hang out and chat today. Oh, thank you. Well, and I just want to say thank you for always seeing the best in me. And something that I know is true in life, certainly in my life, that as like, like attracts like. And so to me, it's a true honor. It's very humbling to have you and Ronnie and the kids in my life because you guys exemplify so much of who I want to be. So thank you. Well, just another, just as our family grows, we're growing together. So it's great stuff. So you grew up in Northern California, specifically the Bay Area. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains in Scotts Valley and then in Saratoga once we hit high school. And to me, there's no greater place in the world. You're surrounded by nature. You got the ocean, you got the mountains, the trees. And I grew up in a very tight, very ginormous family who I know you know many of them. And so my upbringing, it was centered around faith and family and sports. And what a beautiful, powerful way to grow up. You know, there was inspiration all around me. And in the Bay, as you know, it's just, there's so much abundance. And to me, one of the greatest like tracks of abundance in the Bay Area is the inspiration that it has. So for me growing up, I had the inspiration from my family. I had the support of my family who loved me unconditionally, which kind of made me fearless and brave. And then my family would take me all over the Bay. You know, they would take us to Giants games and Warriors games and Stanford University and Santa Clara. And they'd take me to museums and they planted all these seeds in my head, be like, Carrie, what do you like? You know, like, do you want this? Because you can have this. You know, you just got to work hard. And so the Bay Area is just a magical place. And I cannot wait to get back there. I've been in LA for for 20 years. It's been an amazing second place. I live in Manhattan Beach, which is pretty special, as you know. However, the mountains are calling and home is certainly calling. And so growing up, I know you played basketball and volleyball. Mm -hmm. And so when it was time to leave high school and you're, you're choosing college and you're off to Stanford, was there any ever a chance of hoops or was it volleyball at that point, volleyball all the way? You know, in my head, I was terrible at basketball. <laughs> so I just was so insecure. Like I... I played basketball because my Nana loved it. And my Nana was my hero. And she's my mom's mom, such a matriarch, amazing lioness. And she loved it so much. And I honestly like got so much joy from the competitive fire she got from watching me compete. And then also, I really believe in cross-training. And I believe in playing multiple sports, You know, challenging yourself in different ways. I believe in an off-season. And I knew this instinctively growing up. You know, My dad was a multi-sport athlete, my mom as well. And so they just wanted to give us range in life and diversity. And so so high school basketball was mostly about my Nana and about me getting stronger for volleyball because I wanted to be the best volleyball player I could be. And basketball made me really uncomfortable, which is a positive. It made me a lot stronger physically because I was, you know, this six foot, like, 
hundred pound center who <laughs> was just beat up by these big girls. And so I had to be fast and agile and tough. And then mentally it just, it really helped me out too, you know, because you just, you have to become a different beast in different sports. And basketball brought something out in me that was, I think it was important for me to find that side of my voice, you know, which was a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. And I, I assume Stanford was a great place to be. But my question is, you know, I can only imagine what you learned at Stanford, but has life taught you more than what you learned at Stanford? A billion percent. You know, Stanford is, Stanford was my only, like everyone's like, what was plan B? Like, I honestly don't really believe in plan B because I don't believe in hedging your bets. I'm not a poker player. Like I'm very straightforward. I go after what I want with all my heart. And Stanford was incredible. I learned so much the hard way. I learned more at Stanford by what I chose not to do at the time, which I don't know, you know, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way, but the school of life, the school of travel, the school of sport has taught me so much more than university, so much more than any high school. And I was honored and blessed to go to the best high school in the Bay, I believe, and the best university in the world, I think. And yet life and my hard knocks have taught me so much more. Yeah. So you you graduate from Stanford and you make the Olympic team as an indoor player. Mm Mm-hmm. So at that point, do you think this is the pinnacle? I am an Olympian, or do you already, even at that point, think there's more than this? You know, my first Olympic experience was, it was so incredible in so many ways, and it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways. It left me wanting more, is a long story short. You know, I wanted I wanted more as an athlete, but I wanted different because my heart was broken. I was treated in a certain way by my federation that just really hurt me and hurt my heart. And I had poured my life into it for 12 years, and I just felt like I was left kind of hung out to dry. And so I had a like look in the mirror, come to Jesus moment where I was like, what do I want? And then I found my way to beach volleyball, and I feel like the dissatisfaction from Australia in the 2000 Olympics led me to a path in beach volleyball, and the hunger that I got from finishing fourth place in my first Olympics really has keeps driving me, you know, and I, I was so blessed to have three golds, and then that bronze is just going to drive me forever, you know, once the bronze in Rio in 2016, and it's, you know, like, losses suck, <laughs> They suck so bad, but they serve such beautiful purposes. And my indoor experience certainly led me to greatness. And I know this Rio situation will lead me to that as well. And so you're a six-time Olympian, even though you haven't been the the sixth yet. (laughs) Thank you, Larry. But if the Olympics happened today, you were the number two team Mm -hmm. from the U.S. And you'd play in your sixth Olympic in Tokyo, which we are all going to watch next summer. Yeah. I mean, when you think about that, is it do you think it was just all part of the process or are you like, wow, that is kind of incredible? Oh, you know, I haven't really done a lot of self-reflection yet with regard to my career. I, I've had moments where, like when Misty retired, like that gave me the chance to be like, oh my gosh, what did I just live through? Like, holy hell, that was like fairy tale, even though it was so hard in so many ways, but fairy tale. And then after each of my babies, you know, you kind of realize that sport is so finite and your life as a professional athlete is finite. You realize that people forget about you in a minute. <laughs> know and and that was a beautiful gift but as far as like does it all make sense and my life just keeps unfolding in a way that makes sense you know not too much has come out of left field I just I feel like I live pretty sincerely where I'm at as I live my days I figure out how I want to grow and evolve and the evolution makes sense 
And I'm always pushing for growth and I'm always trying to, I'm always seeking knowledge and wisdom. And a lot of that is through experience. A lot of of that is through education, you know, reading stuff and listening to stuff. And I just find myself, the universe, I believe in God. I talk to God every day and I'm just, I'm led to where I belong, Mm -hmm. you know? And if I'm not comfortable in the beginning, I look in the mirror and be like, is this where I want to be? A lot of times it's yes. And then I just suck it up. And do you, do you want to, do you aspire to be the goat of your sport? I do. Yeah. (laughs) I figured that. Uh, Larry, I do. And it's not. I was just going to qualify it, but period, yes, I want to do that. And I, I want to be the winningest, you know, like it, take away the goat, take away all of that. That's arguable. You can't really argue the winningest. And so that's what I would like to be after. And I believe that Brooke Sweat and I, my partner, who is so rad and we are, we have performed so subpar and still we're the fifth team in the Olympic ranking right now after a really terrible first year. I believe I can do that and I can do that with Brooke and it's really exciting. Yeah. And so I imagine... You know, I think we all dream what it must be like to be an Olympian and you show up and there's the opening ceremonies, which everybody just watches with amazement. And so that feeling when you're there, is that enough? I already probably know the answer to this. Hmm. Or is winning really the only thing and is winning the gold? Because it sounds to me like the bronze was nice, but it wasn't great. Well, yeah, just making the team isn't enough. I feel like I'm an American. (laughs) Like I have the American spirit, the Christmas spirit and the Olympic spirit in me every day of my life. Like I can proudly say that and I believe it's true. And that's why I have such an affinity for you and good tidings. It's just in me, you know? And so, and I was just born and raised, like if you play, play to win and take no shame in that, you know? So I've been blessed to get fourth and then win some golds. And I'm blessed to win bronze when it could have been nothing. And I can say this so sincerely, it literally is the journey too. They're like, how do you win a gold medal? And 100%, it's the way you live the journey there. Because it's just the ultimate battlefield preparation, you know, it's trial by fire and the qualifying process. And then you get to the Olympics and you just play and, and kind of let it rip. Like that's kind of the best equation for me. So to me, to not qualify would be devastating. I'll live. To not win a gold medal, yeah, it would be devastating, but I'll live, you know, like that bronze medal. I'm so not ashamed of it. It pisses me off and it drives me, but it was a gift in the moment. And I feel like had April and I, we were the best team in the world, like period. We were the best team in the world and we had a bad night and I had a bad night. And I feel like every ounce of chaos in my life, whether it's, you know, the Rio experience or trouble in my marriage or trouble in life, like I've invited it subconsciously or whatever, because I need to grow through it. And certainly in my athletic career, I think experiencing Rio, like the loss of identity, playing in in fear and shame for two years and working my way out of that, that's going to serve me for the rest of my life. And it's going to allow me to give service and to help other people in experiences like that. So it's all a blessing, even when it hurts so bad. Is it possible that you are a better athlete player now than you were 20 years ago? A hundred percent. I hope so, Larry. Jeez. Well, the only reason I ask that is as a 41-year-old woman... I think it's inspiring to hear that, that people don't think, oh boy, you know, my college days were my, where's my peak, you know? Oh yeah. No, you know, I just, what I know about age at this point, it's just, I feel like we're all raised with such lies, <laughs> you know, like sure. I think age is such a mindset or, you know, being old is such a mindset and I defy that every day. You defy that every day. And when you're passionate about life, you're timeless. So for me, 
I plan on winning a gold medal in Tokyo and I need to be the best I've ever been. The field is better than it's ever been. It's deeper than it's ever been. And people ask me like, why are you changing what's worked? You know, like, why are you recrafting your past and your technique? And it's like, I can't keep doing the same things. You know, I have to get better and I want to be the leader and the standard bearer. And if I'm doing the same things I was doing 15 years ago, that's not going to get me anywhere. So I think I'm a little less springy. I've had so much mileage and so many injuries. However, my body's smarter. It's more put together. I'm stronger, literally stronger than I've ever been. My mind is sharp and I have like 30 years of wisdom in the game. So, (laughs) and I feel like one of the blessings of this crazy time we're living with COVID and everything being canceled is that the hunger is back. Yeah. And I feel like if you're hungry in life, like that is a gift. And I haven't had that for a long time. You know, I've kind of had to manufacture it. And it takes me this much, like takes me a little bit to manufacture that hunger. But now I don't need to because now I'm just grateful to play and I'm like biting at the, you know, the chomp to play. So with the gap between Olympics being shortened next year (laughs) is seven completely out of the question? I mean, you know, it's uh, when there is a possibility of the Olympics being canceled, that's why I'm just grateful that I was postponed. You know, perspective is everything. And Casey, my husband, was the one who was like, babe, it's just two more years. Like, if they, you know, we got this, like, you can get better, we'll train you. And he's the one who suggested that. And I was like, you're right. Yeah, it doesn't take me a lot to get talked into that stuff. That being said, I feel like I'll be ready. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to plant any flag in the ground and say I'm going to be done. I think I've said it plenty, but I'm always leaving the door open because I do feel like I'm getting better. I feel like this is my career. You know, it's the way I support my family, it's the way I'm inspired in life. And those are powerful, beautiful blessings. And so to hang it up prematurely would be silly. It would not be smart. That being said, road trips of six and seven weeks away from my family just, you know, Like a day hurts my heart. So imagine that. I assume you're a believer that hardships and failures have led to your greatness for sure. What are some of the best learning hardships you've had? Oh, man. Well, on the life side, God is very present in my life, right? I'm raised Catholic. My mom goes to church every single day. Now that she can't go to church, she listens to churches, a mass from all around the world. Like my mom is hilarious. She's so rad. And we've had a lot of loss in our life, like loved ones who've gone to heaven. And so I've lived a lot. Like I have a little brother in heaven. I have my Nana, who I spoke of. She's my hero. She passed away when I was 18 at Stanford. Just a lot, every side of me, a lot of death. And yet faith remains. So through the hardship of losing what's most dear are people I've learned to lean on faith and I've learned to double down on faith in those times. And I believe in life that you see what you look for. And in those moments of loss and grief and why and wondering, I always look for God and I always hear Him and I always see it. And that's really powerful to me in my life. And then with regard to just the hard knocks, like at Stanford, I was so intimidated by the academic culture and just the excellence that I checked out. So whereas in my athletic career, if I'm afraid, I'm like coming at you. And so for me, I framed myself very early on as a jock that I'm here to compete, that I'm here to win. And that's the best way I can serve this university. And I didn't go to class. Like I totally checked out. And so I made things so hard and all they want you to do is succeed, but they don't do it for you. And I was too afraid and I was too ashamed to ask for help. And so I just kind of barely scraped by because I was so insecure and so fearful of failing that I set myself up for failure. So huge lesson, right? I mean, if any kids are listening, go to class. (laughs) You're going to pass and you're going to be fine. 
So that was a big lesson for me. And once I kind of wrapped my head around why I chose to do that, and then I've, I've studied a lot, it's like when something, when you're afraid of something, any forward motion, even if it's a half step, alleviates that fear a little bit. And every subsequent step just makes it smaller because you're actually seeing it for what it is, not what your mind is making it out to be, you know? And then in sport, some of the hard, you know, it's just... Huh. It's when you chase big dreams and you you structure your life around big dreams and you fail, you know, all that hurts. But with everything I just mentioned to you have been my greatest lessons, truly. Like I've had to grow as a human so much. Like my life, I almost lost my marriage after one Olympic run because I was only focused on winning gold and I took for granted everything else. And I almost lost my husband when I was pregnant <laughs> with her first baby, you know? And and so that was a reckoning of, Kara, are you going to feel bad for yourself that your husband's upset with you? Are you going to like take responsibility and make positive changes and own up to it? And in every course of life, I mean, I was born with Carrie, don't make excuses, take accountability. If you commit, commit. And so everything I just spoke to you of, the hardships and the heartache, I started by perhaps maybe not taking responsibility, but ultimately looking in the mirror, being like, what's your part in this and making better from it. That's good. So when I first met you and I I just was so (laughs) taken by your sweetness and kindness and then I saw you compete for the first time, and I thought, <laughs> where did that come from? And I'm wondering, these two personalities, how do they coexist? Or you're able to shut off one and the other's your natural way, but when you're competing, it's like like nobody else. Oh, man. You know, I would like the experience of watching me compete through someone else's eyes, because last year I got called next level intense, and I was like, what are you talking about? I'm just doing me. Like... No, it's Carrie, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know, Larry. I think like, I mean, I think you're a great example. Like you have the biggest heart. You're so genuine, so kind. And you also have sharp teeth, you know, like I feel like for, you have both sides of the moon. You have to, to be a full person. And so I think the bigger side of me is a sweetheart and because like, I care and I want to be a good person. And, and I think that's my job in life. It's my duty to show up in that way, you know, goodness and to be a light and to walk my talk. And I don't think it's like the devil in me that comes out when I compete. I think it's almost maybe a fuller me that's less edited, you know, that's more free, but there's obviously so many emotions and things going on and during a match. So it's not the best side of me either. It's not the prettiest, but I have to own all of it. I've been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson, who's an amazing social psychologist. And he talks about, it's not good enough just to be a kind person. Like what makes a remarkable person is the monster who can contain the monster and still be good. You know, and it's like if you can recognize in yourself the dark side, but control it, and then when you need to use it, use it, whatever that looks like in in competition, I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm hitting hard, I'm doing these things. Like that's part of my monster. But as long as I control it, that makes me a virtuous person. But if I'm just kind and meek all the time, then I'm kind of just helpless and I can't do anyone any good. And so I feel like I'm kind of made of that. I feel like we all are, but you have to be vulnerable enough or courageous enough to look at your dark side. And I know it's there, you know, (laughs) and uh, part of me, I just have to love it and look at it and accept it. And if I don't like something about it, I can make it better. Yeah. What I've noticed too, when you, in your sport, you switch sides throughout the match and you always high five your opponent, even in a very crucial, critical, tough match, Mm -hmm. which I love. I don't see that a lot with other teams. So does that come natural to you? That kind of sportsmanship during the middle of a match? Totally. You know, I... I mean, there could be some gamemanship. I don't know. Like, I, I'm really a sen- 
I was going to say sensuous, but yeah, my senses are alive when I'm competing, you know, and I'm hearing things and I'm seeing things and I'm feeling things. And like, I've found myself like walking toward the other team under the net, like and dividing them. And I'm like, oh, Carrie, that was kind of rude. But it's like, I'm just like instinctively moving, you know, but there's a lot of people who kind of half ASS high fives and to their team. And I cannot stand that. Like if I do something, I mean it. Sometimes I hit them a little too aggressively because I'm losing, but no, I, I appreciate the camaraderie. I appreciate the fact that the other team, whoever they are, is there to make me better and to challenge me. And I accept the challenge and I'm grateful for it. So, And you obviously still love this process of competing because I think that where you see with a lot of athletes, at some point they just, they just can't go through the process, the yeah. practice, the grind, and you still must love it, right? Yeah. You know, again, there's a blessing in this COVID situation for me as an athlete and as a woman and a wife and a mommy. But as an athlete, I was just getting so uptight you know, between after Rio and then the first, I guess, three years, like I've just been playing so uptight and so trying to be perfect and trying to fit in this box that I thought would make me great and help my partner. And, and that really crushed me. And I did not like the process anymore. And I was, I was just kind of angry and, and mean, you know, kind of inside. And my, I didn't like my thoughts. And so I think the gift of all this is that I just fully have been spending time with myself. How do I want to be? right? Because I don't want to be how I've been. I'm not winning, first of all. It doesn't feel good and it's not fun. And so I've spent a lot of time over the past six months being like, how do I want to be? Like, who am I inspired by? What do they do great? What can I make my own? So I'm loving the process now. I'm really focusing on my mental and emotional process since I can't train as much as normally would. But yeah, I guess the process is everything. You know, again, it's the journey too that makes you capable of winning. And so the process is the journey too. Yeah. I think one of your greatest gifts too, you're such an in the moment person. Like, Sitting here with you right now, I feel like all you're being is with this discussion, even though you have a thousand other things you could be doing. And But wherever you are at, you're able to leave the last thing you did, not worry about the next, and you gave yourself really authentically, which I think is great. I don't know if that's learned or a gift or what, but it's interesting. I appreciate that. Drives my husband crazy sometimes when strangers come up and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Because <laughs> I could talk to anybody and I love people. And yeah, you know, it's, did you watch The Last Dance? Oh, Michael absolutely. Jordan? Oh yeah. my gosh, how rad. Yeah. Uh, so someone said Michael Jordan's superpower was not his athleticism or his technique or his hunger to win. It was his ability to be present, like meta present. And I know that's true. Because if you're in the moment, like literally, it just, you have, you have control over yourself. And if you can control yourself and be in the moment, like, goodness gracious. Most people are stuck in the past or they're scared about the future, you know? So this is easy because I'm right where I want to (laughs) be. But also I I always want to be right where I want to be, even if I don't necessarily choose it. If I'm in a situation, I honestly feel like the best way to survive or thrive is to act like I chose it. And then my entire constitution steps up for the challenge instead of feeling victimized by it, you know? Yeah. And I think great givers always say yes. And I see that in you because it's easy to say no, because that just relieves you from any thing you have to do, right? You say, no, I don't want to do that. And then you don't have to do anything. And life's much easier. Saying yes means you're stepping up to do something. And I see that in you that you, you know, you're always up for helping or saying yes. And I know I probably get you in trouble sometimes because you're <laughs> over, over committed beyond belief, but I, I like that. And just wondered if that's the way you've always been. You know, Larry, I feel like I mean, yeah, I'm a pleaser. I'm a yes person for sure. <laughs> like, yeah. But I think there's a beautiful side to that. And then once you can kind of create boundaries around that, like that's just my framework. I think that's how God blessed me. I think if you know my mom, what you do, you know, 
you know, that where she's a giver and she's a lover and she's really sincere. And so that's been my role model, my father too, in his own way, you know, but no, I love it. And you've given me the gift of allowing me to do this, you know, and, and sometimes I just say yes, because I sincerely mean it in the moment. And then I like it two days later, I'm like, oh my God, like, how do I make this happen? And with you and good tidings, it's so incredible because you do it all (laughs) and you make it so easy. And, you know, you have this beautiful process and to me, I wish every charity and foundation in the world could look to you because it's like the projects themselves are so beautiful, but it's like the process of developing them and the heart behind it and the way you engage the community to get behind what you're doing is so ginormous. And it's the team. Like you came from baseball. I come from, you know, volleyball and we're both family team members and it's all about the team. And to have you on my team, I kind of have an ace in my back pockets. (laughs) So you make giving easy. And service to me is what I'm here for. Largely, the first thing I think of, how can I be a good person? You know, and that's how I can serve the world best, my family best. How can I do that? And then after that, it's like, okay, then let me put this to action. Yeah. And do you feel that prominent athletes like yourself have a social responsibility to help others? Yeah. Absolutely. I can only speak to my experience. And there's so many athletes, like you've worked with so many of the greatest athletes in the Bay. And I love that they step up to work with you. I mean, it's a no brainer. (laughs) Again, you make things so easy and the projects are so beautiful. But I know the athletes get so much joy from this. And to me, it's, it's largely selfish. It feels so good to give you know, and it's just like the cherry on top that it's a real give. Yeah. I think it's a social responsibility. I feel like all of us have a duty to serve in whatever capacity we can. I don't care if you have a household name or not. I think you've taught me that. I think your scholarship winners and the community that you run in show me that you don't need a million bucks in the bank to go and serve. You don't, you just need to care and you need to put action behind your priorities, action behind that, which you care about. And you've been a great example for that. But yeah, I think athletes should do it. You know, I'm not a really big believer in you should and telling people what to do, but I know that the benefits on a soul level, like if they're just looking at their athletic performance and their legacy, like on a soul level, this will make you a better human. It'll make you a better athlete. It'll make you better for your family and community. And it'll make the burden lighter, you know, because you give. It's such a beautiful gift. So in your sport, do you consider yourself an offensive player or more of a defensive-minded player? And, <laughs> I have, and I have a method to that question. Okay. Well, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. And I know it's interesting because it's a two-person sport and you have yeah. to play. There's no division. But I'm I'm just curious because you're usually the tallest person on your team. Yeah. Does that put you in a little more on the defender side of things at times? I mean, I'm the first line of defense as a blocker for mm-hmm. sure. Defense is my favorite part of the game, but you have to transition it, which means you go yeah. on the offense. I mean, I would say on paper I'm the offensive minded person because I mm-hmm. want to attack. Yeah. You know, I want to strategically attack as well. I think I feel like it's a mindset and it's an aggressive mindset. I don't know how to answer that really. Can yeah. it be both? Yeah, I think you can be both. And I think the reason that, you know, I see you as a defender, it's obviously when people serve, I don't know the sport as well as you do, but they're they're likely not to serve to you sure. because that ends up with a spike in their face by you. Yes. So I get that part. But on the when the other team is serving, you know, I see you as a defender. And the reason I ask is I, I see in sports, it's kind of, as I've kind of studied this, people who are defensive-minded are unselfish people too. Mm. A lot of times, because sometimes that doesn't come with a lot of recognition. You know, there's not a lot of great defensive stats, great offensive stats in sports, and everybody reflects to that. So I'm intrigued on the, you know, in your sport, you have to do both so well, and you've done them well. And I'm sure 
being tall, especially in the indoor game, I'm sure as a blocker or what have you. And so I, yeah. I just thought being a defender and being a giver and being unselfish for oh. me kind of go on hand in hand. So that's how I, I see it. Well, I like that. I yeah. like that. And I do, I mean, obviously you need components of both to be successful in sport, especially yeah. in our sport, because every other play you're doing something different. But on every team that I've been on, when we've been the best defensive team, we've won. And I know even though I'm up front and there's defend, a literal defender behind me, I know I'm a huge part of that. And that's my favorite part of the game. The game within the game on defense is my favorite because you can literally crush someone's spirits yeah, yeah, <laughs> by the way sure. you play defense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I don't know how that pertains to giving, but I like where you're going with it. And yeah, I just, I feel like defense is like, you have to see the whole picture. Where offense, it's just sometimes you can be ego. Sometimes you can just be really brute strength. My partner is a Jedi and she's really analytical about it, which I aspire to be. But um, yeah, I, I prioritize defense for sure. So you came to Good Tidings about 15 years ago with this thought of, which I, I love using the line, is bringing the beach to the inner city. Oh. And, and we developed these carry courts. And tell us about the thought about that and what you've enjoyed about that process. Oh man, what's not to enjoy? You know, I did we were we at Southern Kitchen Las Gatas? I was trying to think of the name. Yeah, I think you're right. Cute little cafe. Um, and I remember sitting down with you and being like, What? Like, who am I to be doing this? And you know, is it time for me yet? Am I big enough yet where I can make an impact? And and you sat down with myself and my agent at the time and you laid out what Good Tidings does and just the picture you painted and the integrity and the enthusiasm you shared with me, your vision and all these things. And for you to give me the chance to grow the game to a demographic that should be having all these opportunities within the game that currently didn't, you know, and still don't have enough access. What a gift to me. You know, this sport has given me everything. And you may, you do 99.9 of the heavy lifting and with so much generosity and grace. And then you allow me to partner with you to give these courts. So yeah, man, there's, there's 18 scholarships in volleyball per NCAA, six on the beach, 12 indoor. That I, I'm pretty sure that's more than any other female sport. That's a big deal. And talk about inner city, talk about underserved communities. Like I want all of these kids to have access to this. And I want the women's game to get so big that the boys game and the men's game rises as well. Cause it, the sport is just so beautiful. It's non-contact. There's a beautiful lifestyle. There's a beautiful community. It's really intellectual. Like there's so many amazing things about it. And so for you to give me the chance to bring these courts to underserved areas and to communities who are so deserving has been the greatest gift of all. And I love it. And I'm so excited for, you know, what's to come. Yeah, I, I love everything about it. It's interesting. People think, oh, that's pretty easy. It's like just throwing a sandbox somewhere. But there's a lot more <laughs> oh that goes gosh. into creating a sand beach volleyball um, court. What's the hardest for you, the hardest projects? Well, the hardest projects is when there's just nothing there, you know, or just a big piece of asphalt or something. Is and it? you know, just creating. I think you just have to have the vision. Yeah. You know, because I think... For me, a lot of this is the beach component, I think, is mm -hmm. a big gift, especially to inner city kids. Because when we did that court, the last one we did at Bishop Conate, mm -hmm. which is inner city, Los Angeles, all girls high school. And I remember, and they have a beautiful volleyball team, and they're going to aspire to be great beach players now. But I remember when those girls just took off their shoes mm -hmm. and stepped on the sand. It didn't even matter that there was a net. Just the spec that this lifestyle of the beach was sitting on their campus. So it's even more than the sport. And, and you I must agree. see that in beach, right? No, of course. No, yeah, absolutely. Well, the lifestyle is beautiful. And, and indoor volleyball, 
and a beach volleyball, the community is very special. And it's hard to put into words, but it's really rootsy and it's very family centric. And it's such a dance to go through the stages. You know, the path to greatness in volleyball is really fun and there's so much opportunity. And it makes sense why people commit themselves because you at every level there's opportunity, you know, to grow and to learn and to engage and to get scholarships or whatever it is. But the lifestyle of the beach is just next level. You know, it's just, it's to me, it's like the American dream. You know, it's like you have, like for how hard you work and dedicate and devote yourself, you also get to play and have fun. And that to me is beautiful. And I think that's a lost art today. Like all these high school kids and even grade school kids are chasing scholarships when they're 10, you know, and they're stressed about getting into the college they want when they're 10. And to me, the beach volleyball side of things just reminds you to be playful, reminds you to be a kid and to be where your feet are, feel the sand, like enjoy it, appreciate your surroundings. And yeah, that I remember that. I was very, I was struck by that because that high school is not too far from the beach. And I don't know how many of those kids had ever been to the beach, you know, which is shocking and something that I take for granted every day. And so the gift is so much more nuanced and so much more layered and so much more meaningful and impactful than just the sport. You know, it's just, it's, it's everything all wrapped into one. Yeah. I, I, I so agree with that. So you have this new company you've started. Tell yeah. us about that a little bit and the unique origin of the name. <laughs> well, we are Platform 1440, P1440 for short. We just want to be 1440 with all our hearts. We want to drop the P. But I think we'll work into that, hopefully. There were some naming issues. But we are a platform because we're more than events. You know, we're, we want to scale. We need to be digital. You know, it's 2020. We need to be virtual. And so we want to be a platform. And then 1440 comes from the fact that, our, that there are only 1,440 minutes in the day. And did you know that? Well, you taught me that. Isn't it a rad thing to know? Yeah. My my follow-up question, but not to interrupt you, is of those 14, 40 minutes, uh, do you sleep any of those minutes? Plenty. I'm a okay. lion. All right. <laughs> yeah. I need my eight, eight hours, Larry. And now it's a priority. You know, I feel like the older we get, the smarter we get. And you have to prioritize sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's something within 1440, where mind, body, spirit, and volleyball, we want to encourage people to love their lives, to create their best lives, to live their minutes, to own their time, to focus on recovery so that you can go and play harder the next day. You know, all of these things that are seemingly fluffy, but make you razor sharp and live a really good feeling life. And so we were established to service the world of volleyball that is 100% underserved when it comes to the marketplace, when it comes to any goods and services and resources. I get questions every single week where parents or athletes or coaches are like, Carrie, tell Tell me how to do this. Like, tell me what's the go-to, you know, inspiration or expert, you know, with regard to nutrition or training or recovery. Like, tell me. And so 1440 is the go-to resource for all these things. Virtual training, live training. We have a ton of juniors events around the country. Our first year we started with elite major events and ideally we'll work our way back to there. But we need to service the biggest demographic in our sport, which is, you know, high school girls and boys, the junior kids who are grateful, who are hungry, who are in needing this and they want it, you know, like the elite kind of take you for granted, you know, whether it's the elite adults who are striving for the Olympics or playing the AVP or the FIVB or the elite high school kids, like they get a lot of attention, but it's like the middle rung adults and kids. You probably see this so much where they really, their hands are raised. They're ready. They're like want to engage, but no one looks at them. So we're going to look at them with all our hearts and service them as best as we can. And we're doing good things. Yeah, it's really wonderful, and it's just great to see what you've done in such a short period of time, for sure. So you're going to go to the Olympics, let's say, in 20. (laughs) 
2021, right? six-time <laughs> Olympian. But I, I'm curious, you know, what are you going to do? You're 41 years old now. What does the next 41 years look like? Oh. Or do you even think of that because you can't let yourself because of the Olympic drive right now? Do you ever let yourself, hey, you know, when I'm 50, when I'm 60, when I'm 70, are you that organized or driven or goal-oriented that you put anything out that far? <laughs> I want to live a beautiful life and I want to keep getting better every decade of my life. And I know better will be redefined as I go. And, you know, I want to get better looking. That's not going to happen, but I need to accept where I'm at, you know, and phys physically things are going to change and shift, but I want to be the best I can be at every moment of my life, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, if I reach, if I reach 88, I'll be happy, you know, and then I'll high five and go to heaven. But no, I, again, I just kind of like you called it out. Like I just, I live in the moment. And I live really sincerely in the moment and my life just unfolds. And so my my short answer is that I expect to live a beautiful life and I'm going to work for it and I'm going to be deserving of it. I'm going to align myself and surround myself by people who can help me become that and to achieve that. And I know it's all going to work out, but I have no plans, but I know I'm a worker. I know I'm a good learner. Post-retirement, 100% focus will be my family, will be on 1440. And I'll just take life as it comes my way after that. So if I was a 15-year-old girl sitting across <laughs> from you, <laughs> if, you could, if you can imagine that, trying just to figure out life or things to do, what are t things you give to these young people as far as advice? Well, I've, I've talked to over 5,000 athletes since the pause and everything. And Zoom has been such a gift to me because I've been able to engage with a lot of 15-year-olds who are, feel lost right now and who feel victimized by the situation. And I've been working through this because this is an emotional time for me. You know, my Olympic journey has been postponed. Like, what do I do with this? There's so much I can't control that's happening to me. And so my number one advice for you, for the 15-year-old girl, for the 10-year-old, for my kids is focus on what you can control and play the cards that you've been dealt to the best of your ability, because that's all we can do. And sometimes you're gonna play it wrong and mess up, and then you learn, and sometimes you're gonna nail it, you know? And there's all sorts of things in between there, but our duty is to show up with all that we have and do the best that we have to work with, you know? Yeah. So that's number one. Yeah, I like that. Well, I just wanna thank you for your time today, just as we kick off this Good Tidings podcast, I couldn't think of a better person to chat with. We probably could sit here all day in chat, although we're in Lake Tahoe, we probably should get outside. We but, uh, should. But yeah, next time I wanna I wanna switch the jobs because I have a billion questions. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Well we'll we'll take that for uh season two. How okay. Yeah, I need I need to develop myself more. To All be right. Able to well do thank that. you so much. You're thank you're you. a joy to be around as always. I love you. Thank you. Congrats. Thanks. You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings Podcast by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.